This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. As you will be able to hear, we were out of the studio and broadcasting live from the Museum of the Future, marking the Dubai Future Forum. We were joined by his excellently by His Excellency Calvin Balhul, space architect Michal Suso, talking about how she is shaping the future in space, chatting to an empath coach, Freya Mortensen, and a clinic on menopause with the menopause doctor, Dr. Fiona Rennie, plus marking World Arthritis Day. How can Tai Chi actually help? Plus, a songwriter turned author, Salia Alpasedi, discussing her new book, which touches on mental health, generations and culture. We are at Dubai Future Forum. It's the world's largest gathering of futurists. What does that mean? It means there are some fascinating panel discussions on everything from the future of food to what is happening in space. Um, taking place over two days here at the most appropriate location, Museum of the Future. 400 of the world's top futurists anticipating challenges, imagining opportunities, sharing foresight and shaping the future as well. There's an awful lot of networking and working together, collaboration going on. And joining us now is one of them, Michal Ziso, is a space architect. I can safely say I've never interviewed a space architect before, so this is a brand new one. Michal, tell us, what is a space architect? Well, uh, hi everyone. Hi. It is, um, I'm creating, researching, designing, living environments for humans outside of Earth. That means that it's anywhere from spaceships to space stations to habitats on the Moon, Mars, and maybe even beyond. <gasps> do you think anything is going to happen in our, we're about a similar age, in our lifetime, do we think we could be seeing long-term space and habitation? 100% yes. I mean, we are going back to the moon now with the Artemis missions. Uh, that means that people are going to land on the moon within two to three years. And we're going to start building bases on the moon. There are space hotels being designed as we speak. Their deadline is, the launch deadline is 2027, which is very, very soon. Wow. Uh, and Elon Musk's uh, date for uh, humans reaching Mars is 2030. So maybe not 2030 for for us being in space but i think we will get to see uh, an experience space within about 20 years or so so yeah would you be on that craft to get there and you know pack your suitcase I i'm saying give me five years i'm here <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to designing these well as you say sometimes transportation methods sometimes homes hotels whatever that might look like what's some of the main challenges for you as an architect that you relish and you, you look to solve well, I specialize. I'm currently I'm looking for more, but as I know, I'm the only space architect in the world focusing on inclusive human-centered design. That means that now we are in an era called the new space era, um, that more people are going to go to space and we have to prepare the infrastructure for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, if so far astronauts have been to space and they're basically superhuman, uh, now we have to think about other people. Mere mortals. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to think about people from different ages, different genders, different abilities, and how can they not only survive in space, but also thrive in space. And perhaps create the next generation in space, yeah. if we're talking long-term living. So tell us about the panel that you were appearing on this morning, which was about the future of space and perhaps its impact here, back down on, uh, on the little old Earth. What were some of the big takeaways that you took from that in terms of what you were communicating, but also from your fellow panelists? Yeah, so there are a few reasons why we are exploring space and want to go to space. One of 
was discussed in the panel was um, disasters that may come on Earth that we have to kind of be prepared. But I think the more um, original reason to go to space is human curiosity. Mm -hmm. We are explorers by nature and we want to know what's out there. Uh, and just to advance ourselves, I think that exploring space is one, yes, for us actually going there, but two, it also enables us to reach crazy innovations that we not, are not necessarily able to think about or conceptualize mm -hmm. when we're only thinking about Earth. And then we can bring that innovation back to Earth and change the way we live here. Great question from Jawad on the text line saying, what an amazing job, how did you do this? Good question, because <laughs> I'm guessing there's perhaps maybe not that many space architecture degrees around on, well, on, there aren't, on this there planet? there aren't that many. Um, so I studied architecture, I specialized on Earth uh, <laughs> with gravity, uh, uh, with uh, skyscrapers, large-scale urban projects, um, and I actually was never into space. Um, I never watched Star Wars. I know. Star Trek? Star Trek I didn't watch. And I got into the industry about five years ago and I realized that everyone in the industry are very familiar with these things and with these series and movies. And I was like, okay, it's influencing the way we are creating and space. maybe it's limiting it. So I'm trying to avoid as much as possible. <laughs> I'm not always successful, but I'm trying to avoid it as much as possible. But I kind of rolled into space architecture from understanding that is really hard to make change here on Earth, mm -hmm. to change the infrastructure, to explain to people, to people with the money or that are calling the shots, uh, what needs to be changed. And space is an easier, quote unquote, it's not easy, it's hard, but it's something that we are designing fresh. Mm -hmm. And it's so different that we have no choice but to think about things differently. So it's an opportunity to really innovate in terms of architecture and design and then we can bring those things back here. For anyone that wants to follow what you're up to and find out more about the projects, collaborations, is there a way of following you or your company? Absolutely. Zizo? So I, I do many things. So my main company is Zeso. It's an innovation and architecture lab uh, where we do design and research. There is uh, uh, thezeso.com. That's our website. Also on LinkedIn. Personally, I gave already two TED Talks. Uh, hopefully, third coming up soon. Uh, and I have a new startup called The Sleep. Uh, where we are designing and creating a new solution to enhance sleep in space in long duration uh, space flights oh, and also bring that solution back here to Earth. Well, I have to say, my first interview with a space architect, and I've loved every second of it. Oh, Michael, so thank you so it. much. Absolutely fascinating to hear what you've been working on in your home country, but also what you've been talking about right here in Dubai. Thank you so my much pleasure. for your time. Go thank off, you. get inspired, network, <laughs> and make sure you come back to Dubai very, very soon. Thank you so much. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Together and one, under one magnificent roof, we have got 400 of the world's leading futurists. The world's largest gathering for Dubai Future Foundation is taking place today and tomorrow. And beyond excited and honoured to welcome to our studio right here at Museum of the Future, His Excellency Kalfan Belhul, the CEO of Dubai Future Foundation. Thank you, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dubai Eye and thanks to you, Helen, for having me. Well, thank you for making the time because, my goodness, we've got an incredible roster of talent, some fascinating panels going on right now. So thank you for tearing yourself away from 
potentially some life-changing conversations that we're witnessing right here in Dubai. Yes, absolutely. And like you said, I mean, this is the inaugural version of the Future Forum and we're extremely excited because, like you said, it's extremely diverse. A lot of experts from different nationalities, from different countries, different sectors that they focus on which is the main purpose of what this convening and I think if we go back maybe and take a helicopter view on the the reason why we have this gathering I think dialogues in general are more important than ever and I think we've unfortunately at some instances learned it the hard way for example in the pandemic we realized that some countries and cities did better than others because they had more conversation and more dialogue and put long-term planning and strategies and thankfully the UAE and Dubai have been one of the uh, cities and countries that were in the forefront. I agree I think I think when we look back there are going to be some companies and some countries that are going to have a lot to be proud of of how they coped the pandemic how they navigated and how they've come out really strong and Yes, don't get me wrong, I enjoy a conversation on Zoom from time to time, yes. but there's nothing like getting people together no in one room to collaborate and share, sit on a panel and really explore and challenge ideas. 100%. And, and if you think about it, Helen, now we're, we're, we're talking about physical uh, gatherings, we're talking about Zoom, mm -hmm. but now imagine the metaverse, for example. Uh, those things really are, have a lot of value. Yes, I agree. There's trillions of dollars of economy value in, sh in a short period of time coming our way. But what, what's coming our way as well is many challenges as well that we need to discuss. And make no mistake, one hand doesn't clap. We need the whole world to discuss and have a, have a dialogue in, in the sense of how we can govern um, something like that, like the metaverse. But that's only one topic, Helen. You're talking about how do we align with tech laws, how do we align when it comes to our interactions with, with robots, for example, and artificial intelligence and ethics. So all this will not be moved and global strategies will not happen unless we really have a proper discussion. And that's why we're here today. Out of some of the panel discussions, can I ask which ones to you are really personally interesting that you're kind of listening with a special interest? Um, that's, uh, that's one of the toughest challenges. <laughs> Honestly, we have so many. I, I really enjoyed uh, the discussion that was between His Excellency Mohammed Al-Gargawi and Dr. Michu Kaku. It was, very, it was a very agnostic discussion, but the reason is because it was a, a discussion between two uh, futurists and two experts. Mm -hmm. um, and just seeing them debate what's going to happen in the future and interact and, and being realistic about it. And both of them really focused on the value of humanity with all the advancement and how much we need to focus on that because screen time is increasing, interaction with mobility and mobile devices is also increasing. But what does this mean for the human being and the preservation of our human capital, which is important? That's a really fascinating topic, actually, because no one wants to deny technology, but we've got to very much go into this with our eyes wide open and how can we coexist rather than compete and as you're saying there that the advances are incredible we, we spoke earlier to a space architect who's talking about how you know she's working on transportation but also ways of living in space and did say that it's something she thinks could happen in our lifetime would you be keen to live in space for a little while or a long time um, Helen you've reached uh, you've climbed all the way to Kilimanjaro so I'm willing to climb <laughs> all the way to space but I, and I think this is um, this is very realistic and uh, if you see from the Museum of the Future, we've dedicated the floor to show that the ease of access to space is becoming more affordable and more realistic. So do we dare to dream to uh, test space in every way and form? I don't want to ruin it for the viewers, but if they come to visit the museum, they realize that we've shown space exploration, ways of living on, 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 on stations and in the moon and, and, and all that I think is becoming more and more realistic and, and uh, we need to dare and dream and, and explore those kind of things. And closer to home, what are your 
hopes and dreams for the UAE in the, the near to not so near future when we're thinking about everything from sustainability to the way we exist in the city? Yes, I think for, for me the biggest I mean, uh, dream is that unity and collaboration uh, prevail in this challenging environment in the fourth industrial revolution. And the UAE is a small country but with massive ambitions. And I think we've proven this more, more than once that we're willing, since the founding fathers of this nation, we were willing to make big bets and we've succeeded in some, we've pivoted in some, but we've learned a lot. And the successes are the likes of Dubai ports, Emirates Airlines, and all the buildings you see here, and all the policy advancements that are aligned with innovation. Those are big bets that we have thankfully achieved. Now the next, uh, uh, the next era now in the fourth industrial revolution requires global alignment in order for companies to thrive. Back in the days, the businesses would scale up uh, with the boundaries of the market around them. Today, Helen, a click of a button, the market is, the globe is your market. So we need global alignment. How can we work closely with other uh, like-minded countries and cities to make sure that we have a better future for everyone? So my, my dream is unity, collaboration and cooperation and inclusivity in the future. Well, I just want to say a, a big thank you for getting so many brilliant brains in one place. It's hugely exciting to hear some of the conversations on stage, but also to hear some of the networking. You know you've got the right people in the same room when you can't get them to be quiet. And there's some brilliant ideas being exchanged and I think we've got an awful lot to look forward to. This is going to be such a spark for so much in the future. Very much so and like you said the sessions are very valuable but the side discussions are also as valuable mm -hmm. and what we're doing as Dubai Future Foundation we're aggregating all that whether the dialogues in the sessions or what happens outside and the idea is to convert that into action items and disseminate it on reports that we're going to publish towards the end of the year that, uh, that, that show opportunities and also highlight challenges mm -hmm. so that we can really do something about them at, uh, at a Dubai level, but for the world. Thank you so, so much, Your Excellency Kalpa Balhuli is there as the CEO of Dubai Future Foundation. I'm going to let you get back to the many panels happening here at Dubai Future Forum. Hugely exciting event hosted here at Museum of the Future. Thank you so, really do appreciate Thanks your time. Thanks to you, time. Helen. Thank you very much. The event is running today and tomorrow. And don't forget to check out our Instagram and, of course, Museum of the Future to see what's happening behind the scenes. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is all about health this afternoon and we're marking World Arthritis Day. Joining us live on the line is Dr. Hamera Badger, consultant rheumatologist. She's the founder and board manager at the Emirates Arthritis Foundation and the Emirates Society of Rheumatology. She's got more than two decades of experience as a rheumatologist across three countries, USA, Singapore, USA and UAE, and is the author of the book, The Wellness Guide to Arthritis. She's happy to take your questions and we're going to be giving you a bit of a need to know about all things arthritis. Dr. Hamera, how are you? I'm good, Helen. Thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. I don't want to say happy World Arthritis Day, but I know it's obviously a big part of your life, and I think it is really important to be shining a light on something that does affect so many people. What do we know about how common arthritis is in its various forms? So, you know, uh, arthritis, we have 50 types of arthritis which affect 200 joints in the body, and arthritis can affect older people or even children as young as two years of age. So people always think it's an old person's disease, but there's so many different types of arthritis. And overall, these 50 types of arthritis can affect about 20% of the population at some point of their life. So one in five people are at risk for arthritis. That's, that's significant. 
as you say, I think there are quite a lot of myths and misconceptions about it. I had, I had a catch-up with my orthopaedic surgeon the other day about my MRI results. So you're speaking to one of the one in five now with my osteoarthritis in my knees. It's, uh, it's not fun, doctor. It's not fun. It's something that can, I mean, mine's very, you know, mild compared to what some people go through, but it can be debilitating. It can be life-changing, incredibly painful right. and, and really in some ways quite manageable if caught early and I'd, I'd love you to talk a little bit about some of the risk factors and you know if we're looking at perhaps right. some of the most common types what do we know about what can cause or even increase your chances of having arthritis? Right let's talk of the most common type the one you have osteoarthritis which is a wear and tear arthritis which occurs when you know when the cartilage gives way this is usually uh, related to risk factors like being overweight or excess use of the joints, such as exercising very heavily, uh, genetic factors, which you can't alter, of course, and smoking. Uh, so we advise people to exercise, but exercise in a sensible manner where you strengthen the muscles around your joints um, and also to control your weight uh, so that you don't um, you know, you know, put excess weight, on, weight or pressure on the joints. So, uh, so the other type, which is the autoimmune type, such as rheumatoid arthritis, we, uh, a lot of genetic factors and environmental triggers play roles. Again, smoking is a big one. Vitamin D deficiency can trigger autoimmune diseases, so you have to be careful for that. And again, their obesity or being overweight uh, is a very big factor. So these are some things you can control. Controlling weight, exercising regularly but sensibly, making sure you have enough vitamin D in your system, uh, whether it's through a pill or sun exposure, all of these can help you. Doctor, absolutely there with me, overweight for too long, um, wear and tear on joints, genetic factor. My mum is actually having a knee replacement tomorrow, bless her. Um, oh, so I'm while yeah, I know, I know, surgery, surgery is in the future. I, am, I know that much and it's something I'm not looking forward to. Yeah. But in the meantime, exactly what you're talking about, being active but no running, thank goodness. Um, yeah. And yeah. we're here to answer questions as well. We've had, we've had a lot of messages actually on this topic, which isn't, isn't surprising um, given... Yeah given just how common it is. Um, Bilal says, um, hi both, my dad is 65, has osteoarthritis in both knees and has had, has been, here we go, has been advised to have knee replacements. He's worried about recovery time and if it will appear in other joints after the surgery. Any insights? Bilal, thank you for that. It seems like we are kindred spirits on our, on our, our beloved parents. What do we need to know there about replacements? And the good point there, do, you know, will it just appear in other joints down the line? Okay, so that's a good point. Usually osteoarthritis is not widespread. It tends to stick to a few joints. It doesn't affect all of your joints and keep spreading. So some people just have it in their hands. Some people have it in their hips or their knees. It depends on how your body is structured and where your genetic predisposition lies. So that's the good news. The bad news is it depends on how much pain and what the, jo what the x-rays and joint space looks like. If you have a lot of pain and not able to be mobile, then the only option is joint replacement surgery. Now, we have other options in the interim where we um, do physiotherapy and, of course, there are various types of injections you can have in your knees. Uh, we give a lot of hyaluronic acid, which is like an oily injection. You inject into the knees and it gives a lot of pain relief, which can last 6 to 12 months. And also recently, we are doing a lot of what's called plasma or platelet-rich plasma, which is having very, very good results. That's not as far as going to stem cells, uh, PRP or platelet-rich plasma is an in-office procedure, uh, quite easy to do, no downtime, no side effects, a little bit expensive because it's not covered by insurance, but also giving good results. 
So there are some interim options you can try prior to surgery, but the recovery time is quite fast, actually. For knee replacements these days, it's very fast. I mean, you're supposed to be walking by the next day, and, you know, you will be on crutches or some sort of support for a couple of weeks. Uh, but usually people are doing really well with the new technologies and even robotic-assisted knee replacement surgery. Well, it's funny you should say that because we are here at Dubai Future Forum, the world's largest gathering of futurists. And I, I wondered if you know, you're seeing anything in development now that could be really beneficial to arthritis sufferers in, in the future, Dr. Mero. Is there anything that you think could be on the horizon? Yes, I think we're seeing a lot of increase for osteoarthritis of uh, these kinds of injections with stem cells, uh, you know, Goldick and PRP injections. And I think more and more studies are being showing, showing their benefits. As far as the autoimmune arthritis, every day we have new drugs, biological drugs and JAK inhibitor drugs, which are being used to successfully control autoimmune diseases. So I think we are far ahead of where we were even 10 or even 20 years ago. Um, I've got a message here that I'm going to try and squeeze in, if you don't mind. And this is from Eliza saying, for a few years now, I've been getting increasingly worse pain in what feels like all the bones in my feet from toes to ankles. Um, now having issues with my knees randomly seizing up, clicking, um, and also pain around the base of my thumb. It's worse and I've got my period. My dad has suggested it might be arthritis. I've had a Google of the symptoms. Um, it sounds like RA. How do you get a diagnosis and what is the treatment? Thank you for that, Eliza. I think that's a really good question in terms of how do you get a diagnosis and if it is rheumatoid arthritis, yes, what does treatment look like? Question. Yeah, excellent question. And the main thing first is to see a rheumatologist. A lot of people mistakenly see, think that all types of arthritis, you go to an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I think early stages of osteoarthritis and all other types of arthritis go to a rheumatologist first. The rheumatologist takes a careful history, does a physical examination for swollen joints, and orders blood tests, including inflammation markers and rheumatoid arthritis tests for you, and then comes to a diagnosis based on one of the 50 types of arthritis. And in terms of, I don't want to say cure, <laughs> is it a case of management versus cure? Is this something that a sufferer will be living with for the rest of their life? Yeah, there are some types of arthritis actually which get cured. There's something called reactive arthritis where your body swells up and is inflamed in reaction to an infection. We've had post-COVID arthritis in, in reaction to a vaccine. We've had post-vaccine arthritis. And these usually settle down anywhere from six weeks to three months and then they disappear. Also, we, we our treatment cures the patient and the off medication. Uh, and then sometimes it's just a bacterial infection and things can be cured. Gout can be very well controlled with just uh, with just lifestyle management and some minimal medication, and a lot of a lot of arthritis, which is autoimmune, can actually be treated very effectively if caught early. So it's like high blood pressure, diabetes. You catch it early, you you mitigate your risk factors, and you take medication early, and you know you don't have any of the complications, and you can live very successfully with it without any joint damage and without any chronic pain. So early treatment is a key. Dr. Mera, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it for taking questions as well. Um, and if anyone does want to find you there, you are the founder and board member of the Emirates Arthritis Foundation and the Emirates Society for Rheumatology and the book, we've had a number mas no, going, what is the book called? It's The Wellness Guide to Arthritis. Up next, we're looking at a bit of pain management in an unexpected place, the art of Tai Chi. That's next. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer.
We are marking World Arthritis Day. Just hearing there from a consultant rheumatologist who was very clear in terms of lifestyle factors, reducing weight, being active, and of course seeking an early diagnosis and treatment. And really following through on that active lifestyle in a quite an unexpected way, joined now by Yasser Bilgrami, a Tai Chi expert who started his martial arts journey 42 years ago with Taekwondo, in which he earned a black belt, and this has just been the start of a fascinating journey. Yasser, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Helen. Thank you for having me on. You're so welcome. Thank you for joining us. Now, Tai Chi and arthritis. It's interesting because Dr. Hamara was saying, you know, we think about arthritis being an old people's disease. And please forgive me, I think of Tai Chi being something of an older person's activity, mainly because my grandmother did it when she lived in Korea. And I wondered if that's a bit of a, a, bit of a myth. What is the typical demographic of a, a Tai Chi lover? Uh, Helen, Tai Chi is actually an old martial art derived from Taoist practices that happened to be good for health. So what happened in the past 80 years was that the healing aspects have been more focused on and the modern iterations are what uh, reflect the, the healing as, uh, aspects. Now, what Tai Chi works on, it works on essentially the same principles as acupuncture. Wherein in acupuncture, you, you use needles to enhance your uh, internal energy flow, whereas Tai Chi uses specific groupings of movements to stimulate the same thing. Now, when I speak of internal energy, I'm speaking of, in medical terms, the body's cremovascular system. That is your body's bioelectricity. Now, this bioelectricity is what runs the, essentially the, the body's main functions, which the Chinese in the old days uh, referred to as qi. So, mm. Tai Chi through a sense, uh, like a grouping of movements, stimulates these very same uh, this bioelectricity throughout your body, the, it, the flow, it enhances the flow. It's, uh, it's like you visit an acupuncturist and they use a needle along specific acupuncture meridians to, you know, uh, uncover blockages. Here, through specific groupings of movements, you uncover blockages of what, all the, the associated acupuncture meridians. That's how it works. And it's very good for old people because the, the practice is gentle, it's slow, mm -hmm. it's low impact. Uh, focused, yes, it's low impact. And when you, when you do something that's slow and low impact, you not only uh, like have the large muscles working, but you also have the ligaments and the fascia working to make a more comprehensive neurological pathway, let's say. So that's why like a very slow, relaxed movement is a more full movement because all the fascia and the ligaments and the muscles are working in tandem and in harmony. And the neurological pathway that you're making and you're creating is a lot uh, more uh, comprehensive. So yeah, yeah, specifically... Yeah, so can I ask you, where, where can you do it in, in the UAE? Are there, is there anywhere that you recommend total beginners to go along to have a try, whether they are suffering from arthritis or just want to find out more about this ancient martial art? Yes, you, you do have a few centers. And I think that uh, there are a few people in the Chinese community who are teaching. Uh, I teach out of a center called Just Be, which is in Jumeirah. And, uh, you know. Just, just Be people, is one of my favorite yes. places in Dubai. It's a beautiful little oasis there in Jumeirah. Yasa, yeah, so thank you so, so much. Thank you. I hadn't realized the relationship in, or the, 
similarities between that and acupuncture. Absolutely fascinating. So Yasa Bilgrami, thank you so, so much. Really do appreciate your time. And if you do want details of Yasa, you can find him online. It's afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We're here live at the Dubai Future Foundation. Hope you're having a wonderful afternoon. We're going to be meeting next a songwriter turned novelist who is using the medium of writing to work through culture, generations, identity and mental health as well. Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Fantastic to be joined now by a songwriter, a song performer um, and also and now a writer. Salah Al-Basadi was born in London to Omani Zanzari parents and originally made her name, yes, here in Dubai as a singer and songwriter. I can guarantee if you've been to events from Rugby Sevens to Black Tie events, you will have heard her incredible voice. But during the pandemic, as we know, an awful lot changed for performers here in the region and beyond, and she decided to turn her hand to writing. Her debut novel, The End of Summer, is out now, and it tackles some very sensitive subjects, including mental health, it spans cultures and generations, and she joins us now. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Helen. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely to hear from you and to hear about how you are changing direction or perhaps honouring a part of your life that you hadn't been able to tap into until well, you had the headspace and the time, um, one positive out of the pandemic. Um, so tell us a little bit about the plot of End of Summer. Ooh, the plot, okay. Um, without giving anything away, actually, this is the first uh, chapter. This um, 22-year-old woman, young woman, wakes up in the bathroom in her parents' house, but actually she's dead. It's her soul looking down at her body. And in Islam, we bury our dead very quickly. So she has pretty much 24 hours to figure out how she died because she can't remember. And uh, during the whole book is like a conveyor belt of memories of her life, of how her grandparents met. Her grandmother was a um, refugee from Zanzibar. Um, she was born in England. You know, just like um, it's a lot of family stuff. It's a lot of insight into Islam about a culture that is quite secretive and conservative. And I'm pretty much whipping the curtain back on a lot of things that we don't talk about the taboo subjects and uh yeah we'll see if it's popular or not <laughs> uh, i think it sounds fascinating i mean we, when you've got a, a plot twist that early on and as you say she's got just 24 hours to really try and unpick you know family secrets talk thinking about her own secrets as well and there's a real mental health aspect to it can i can i ask you how did writing that book help you address any issues you'd been struggling with or you know that you'd acknowledged or experienced in in the family um well the thing is i wrote it about i wrote it for my nephew my nephew was found dead in his bathroom by his sister about 11 years ago yeah it was it was awful um I say it was awful we laughed a lot at his funeral which sounds awful but that's what made me wonder if he was around us, if his soul was around us, because we used to giggle all the time with him. So I, I thought maybe he's here with us, you know, making us laugh. So that was um, that was one of the reasons I wrote it, because I kept thinking, what happens to the soul? Um, but, you know, I say we laughed a lot, but he did have his issues, you know. He, he wanted to be an artist. Um, and in our culture, we're quite traditional, you know, it's like doctor, lawyer, study business, you know, it's not, you know, go ahead and paint. 
um, he was very creative. And I think that that caused a lot of problems. You know, he wanted to go abroad and study. And being stuck in Oman, I think, uh, was quite stifling for him. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um, yes, I deal with a lot of sort of patriarchal stuff in there, you know, and how it's difficult to be a woman in a place where, you know, men still take precedence and uh, there's a double standard and what they can get away with and what we can do, um, how somehow on our shoulders we're responsible for the entire family's reputation and honor uh, and the men can go out and do whatever they want. And, you know, as you said, I've been a singer for 20 years, I think, years. Um, so I've already done that. I've already <laughs> broken the mold and, and also had people calling my mom and saying, you know, do you know what your daughter is doing? And so, you know, I'm very vocal about that kind of thing in, uh, in the book. It sounds, as you say, you're, you're, you're breaking the mold in terms of those expectations and those kind of professional careers that were expected in previous generations, but I think it's still, still very much the case in some families and, and societies now. How has your family responded to the book? Um, oof. I think my sister is, um, it's very hard for my, my niece to read it because the first chapter is very much how she found her brother. Um, you know, when she told me about it, it hit me so hard. I couldn't get the images out of my head, which is, you know, why I eventually wrote the book. Uh, so it's hard for her. My brothers love it. Uh, they love the book. Um, my older brother is quite conservative. And uh, he was like, why is so much swearing? Why do you have to swear so much? Because <laughs> <laughs> Summer is quite, you know, she's got quite, you know, a bit of anger she's a, in her. She's a character. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the character. So, uh, but then at the end, when he read it, he finished it and he said, don't change anything. This is a very important book because we need to speak about a lot of the things mm-hmm. that are in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and dad haven't read it yet, but I've told them what it's about. So we'll wait until <laughs> they read it and see. Well, I just think it's so important that it's out in the world now for you kind of sticking your head above the parapet and whether that is speaking to those who are familiar with some of the themes you're talking about, whether it is, you know, identity across cultures or mm. mental health, depression, um, or indeed those who just really want an insight, as you're saying, you're kind of lifting the lid on quite, you know, some secretive aspects there. I think it sounds absolutely fascinating. I've got a message here, is it out now? Is it out now? Where can, where can we get hold of End now. of Summer? Um, okay, so it is uh, on Amazon and it's also in the bookshops. In fact, I signed some in how exciting! What a moment that must be to see your see your name and the cover on the on the shelves. Yes, yeah, they've got little stickers on them saying "signed by the author." I did that oh. yesterday, so yeah, no, Well, huge congratulations! I I really think it's such a valuable not just topic topics that you are exploring in that book, and amazing for you to be able to work through some of the things that you and your family have been through. And that's, that's the power of writing, I think, and the power of reading as well. Thank you so much, Sal. I really do appreciate your time today. I know you're incredibly busy, um, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. I think it sounds like a, a future book club book for, for me and my gang. So wishing you all the very best with, uh, with all, the, all the future as well, and keep us posted on how it all unfolds. I could, just saying, it sounds like something that could be on screen, so watch this face. Actually, watch the space. You were asking what you're looking forward to in the future. I'm looking forward to going to the Oscars. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon ahead. We are here at Dubai Future Forum. As you might be able to hear, we're not in the studio. We're at the Dubai Museum of the Future. 
Um, we're going to be crossing over to Jitex over the course of the afternoon, speaking to thought leaders, and we've got some great doctors, including one of Dubai's busiest, Dr. Fiona Rennie from Genesis, joining us. She is Dubai's menopause doctor. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. The transition from perimenopause to menopause is a totally, perfectly natural part of life for roughly half the population. However, there's still something of a stigma around it, and this leaves the door wide open for misunderstanding and often unnecessary worry. She is known as the menopause doctor in Dubai and probably has the busiest colour in, in town. Dr. Fiona Rennie from Genesis Clinic, alive with us now to answer any questions you might have. Dr. Fiona, how are you? Okay, do you know what? We're going to head over Hi, to a song. Can you hear oh, me? Yes, I can. We've cracked it. See, I'm here uh, trying to live in the future here and I can't, I can't even get this right. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us. Now, can I ask you why, I know, as I said, you're incredibly busy, but why do you feel like there has been such an explosion of interest and, like, and concern to some extent um, around perimenopause and the menopause here in Dubai right now? I think a lot of it's driven by all the publicity about menopause and education going on in the UK. Um, there's a woman doctor, Dr. Louise Newton in the UK, that's really been the last five years driving for the cause of perimenopause and menopause. And Stephen um, uh, McCall's documentary promoted um, menopause and perimenopause treatment and really made it a little bit more acceptable to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I think women are just becoming more aware that of what symptoms they can expect I think that's exactly it. For a long time it was like, well, you know, it's the change, it's, it's, it happens to us all. And there was a bit of a badge of honour, a bit like, you know, pain-free childbirth mm. of going, well, you know, mm. it, it was miserable, but you get through it. Whereas, as you say, I think people, are, women are feeling a bit more empowered and confident to seek help if they're finding yeah. some of these yeah. often really distressing symptoms life-changing, identity-shifting, painful, distressing, you know, what, whatever it might be, and, and reaching out and seeking help. And I wondered, you know, as I said, there is still something of a, of a stigma around it and a lot of miseducation. What are some of the common misconceptions about the menopause that you're hearing from women coming into the clinic or reaching out to, to contact you? Well, a lot of women think that they really just have to push on through. Um, and there's a lot of concern about possible side effects of taking hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. and that really harks back to a really poor study that was done in 2002, the Women's Health Initiative study that came out of the US and that, um, that study has since been disproven but it really scared people. It mm-hmm. came out and said that HRT caused breast cancer and caused heart disease and we know now that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, the study group was flawed, it was a small selection of women over the age of 60. So unfortunately a whole generation of women missed out on HRT because doctors were afraid to prescribe and um, women themselves were afraid to take HRT. So mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to change now. Um, the type of HRT that we use has changed and we know, now know that for most people the pros outweigh the cons. But we still are very selective about who we give HRT to and mm-hmm. we always make sure that women are informed about what they're taking and the likely consequences and the likely benefits. 
Dr. Finn, I've been inundated by messages for you, unsurprisingly. Um, so if anyone does want to get in touch with anything, please do so, but do, do it quickly. A uh, message here, um, you can be anonymous, saying, should we have our hormones checked regularly before the menopause so we know our baseline have a track record instead of trial and error dosing of HRT when symptoms start? It's tricky testing hormones, isn't it? What do you tend to advise? Yes. No. I'd say no. no There's no point. The h- mm-hmm. Hormones change by the by the hour, by the minute. Okay. Um, and so if someone has a regular cycle, there's no point in testing hormones except if they're showing signs of testosterone deficiency. Okay. Um, and that can be quite common in late 30s, early 40s. So I would um, often check testosterone in women that were showing symptoms, lack of motivation, persistent tiredness, um, poor memory, low mood. But as far as doing general hormone checks, no. Okay, it's that's no very useful in itself. Um, Kay is saying, I've started progesterone tablets and, um, and after two cycles have the biggest bloated, most painful stomach. Would love to know if this gets better. Do I need to keep going or should I change? Um, that's a common symptom. It usually settles. But what we do is we change the way we give the progesterone. There are different, different methods okay. um, of using progesterone. And that would be something that would be best discussed with the prescribing doctor. But there's several tweaks we can do to help that. Um, I love this question from Rian because um, I'm the same. Rian says, I'm 44 and the brain fog is real. Periods are still regular, but could this be perimenopause? Any advice? Ah, the brain fog. And he's like, is it? Is it a COVID thing? Is it an aging thing? Is it a perimenopause thing? Yeah. <laughs> why can't I remember why I walked into a room? Um, can this be a sign of perimenopause? Definitely. So the brain needs estrogen to function normally. And if the brain's not getting estrogen, it can make you irritable, emotional, feel anxious, feel depressed, memory goes. Um, concentration, brain fog. So all of those things are the estrogen effects on the brain. And when you're in perimenopause, even if you do have a regular cycle, your the quality of your eggs aren't, isn't as good. And mm-hmm. when you do ovulate, you're not getting a good hormone response. So you start to get fluctuating levels of estrogen. So definitely they can be signs of perimenopause, along with a whole host of other things. So I always um, recommend going to a doctor that is interested in perimenopause treatment and discussing it because the other causes of brain fog can be thyroid, can be low vitamin D, low vitamin B12. So you really have to look at the whole picture before you just say it's perimenopause. Thanks, doctor. Dr. Fiona Rennie with us this afternoon from Genesis Clinic. She is the menopause doctor in Dubai. We've stolen her away from a very busy calendar. And up next, from a recent headline, the menopause supplement industry is to grow to 22.7 billion by 2028 as women seek out alternative treatments. We've had a message here saying any natural alternative to HRT. I'm curious. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Lots to talk about this afternoon and discussing the menopause. Hot flashes, the most commonly cited reason for seeking treatment and the impetus for three out of five women to talk to the healthcare provider. We're speaking to a doctor right now, Dr. Fiona Rennie of Genesis Clinic on hand to answer my questions and yours, most importantly yours, on all things perimenopause, menopause, symptoms, treatments and more. Um, 
Dr. Fiona, um, in, in a recent headlines from Forbes, menopause supplement industry to grow to 22.7 billion by 2028 as women seek alternative treatments. And I've certainly seen this on the shelves. Lots of talking about, um, you know, natural estrogen and you know ways of hormone balancing. We've actually had a message on this topic as well, asking about natural therapies and you know natural ART um, HRT. What, what do you um, think about supplementation, either as a replacement of HRT or as something as a complement to help a woman go through this? I think it's a good stepping stone for women that have mild symptoms that can be really effective. And there's several, I won't mention the names on air, but there's several that can be really helpful. When the symptoms are quite severe, it's not usually enough. So mm. if people are getting really serious flushes, they're not sleeping, um, very got a lot of mood symptoms then um, really HRT is the only thing that's going to work but I'm quite um, supportive of people taking supplements and I'll often start people on supplements before we even get to HRT I think that's, um, I mean, I understand you not mention them on air because I feel like a lot of these things, whether they are something you can buy at the pharmacy, should be taken in the direction of your doctor. Um, so do seek out, you know, medical attention specific to your case before, you know, going willy-nilly and, you know, having fistfuls of supplements every night. Um, anonymous message here saying, a male doctor told me that pain in the breastbone is something perimenopausal women get. Is this true? Have you heard that before? No, never. Okay. There you go. Thank you. I've, I've no, a simple no is incredibly useful. Um, um, and no, again, no name on this one saying, why can't we just use the contraceptive pill instead of HRT for menopause? Can you talk to us about the distinctions there? Uh, the contraceptive pill is a synthetic hormone. So we prefer to use body identical um, hormones, which are made from yam and plant-based and much safer. When you take the contraceptive pill, it's the same as any estrogen you take by mouth. It goes through the liver and increases the clotting factors in the blood. So there's a higher risk of blood clots and strokes. And the other issue is that the contraceptive pill is probably 100 times stronger than hormone replacement therapy. And we always want to keep doses to a minimum of hormones. So it's, it can be useful. Um, there are some people that certainly benefit from it especially those with, a, with heavy um, periods. But it's, it's not something I use very often. And a lot of women don't want to take it. Mm -hmm. As you're saying, better to be on the conservative side and then you've got mm. the option of, of mm. adjusting doses um, as, as needs be. Um, a message here from M saying, thank you for this. I've had terrible hair loss as I've got to my 50s and I've heard HRT mm -hmm. makes it worse. Is that true? No, no, it doesn't make it worse. Women lose approximately a third of their hair volume as they age. Um, hair loss, my, the five things I always think of are thyroid disease, vitamin B deficiency, iron deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency, and hormone deficiency. Um, a recent paper came out um, that had studied hair loss in women taking testosterone supplements because we use that as part of HRT. Mm -hmm. And there was no evidence to suggest that testosterone increased um, hair loss either and that would be the one that you would think of okay. um, the most. So, so not no I don't believe HRT makes it worse. But definitely worth getting some blood work done to establish what the route might be. Exactly. Yeah. Can I ask you Dr Fiona um, what affects the age that you start perimenopause and menopause because I know obviously there's a genetic variation but yes. are there any anything else I don't know like 
socionomic position or your environment? You know, are there any other factors that we should be mindful of? Did you say what age do we start? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the average age of perimenopause is around about 40 and it lasts for 10 to 12 years. Now, not everyone gets symptoms. Some people just breeze through it and others are quite challenged by it. Um, average age of menopause is 52 and the definition of menopause is no period for a year. So essentially the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause are the same. Unfortunately, so many women are told you have a regular cycle, you can't be going through perimenopause and that's not correct. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about educating women, it's about educating doctors because it does tend to be dealt with quite badly by medical professionals. Which is why you're so busy. <laughs> um, no Correct. name on this message. It came through on the on the text line saying, um, "I'm suffering with perimeno symptoms of heart palpitations, early waking, feeling of doom, unwarranted panic. I'm on HRT, but heard magnesium is good too. Um, but there are so many types and doses. Um, can Dr. Fiona advise if magnesium would be useful for these specific symptoms?" Um, well, first of all, I would want to know what type of HRT, whether she's on body identical, and if she's still getting palpitations, um, then it may be that she's not on enough oestrogen, but with the caveat to you must be checked out by a cardiologist if you're getting palpitations. Mm-hmm. Um, magnesium is um, hormone balancing, relaxing, calming. Um, it's very good for sleep. Uh, we like a dose of around 400 milligrams at night. Um, have that effect on sleep but yes definitely I would add a magnesium but also um, it may be that she needs more estrogen. I really like this question from Hannah about when to take HRT saying I'm 49 still have regular periods symptoms are mainly brain fog sore joints irritability occasional night sweats and anxiety I'm thinking I should start taking HRT as a preventative for osteoporosis that runs in my family but I'm worried about side effects and weight gain how do you decide when to start great question Okay, so my, I just say to my patients, it's when your quality of life is impaired, when you feel that actually you could be doing better than what you're doing. Um, so not, not every woman chooses to go on HRT. Everyone has their own journey and their own health needs. Um, but I, so it's, I spend an hour with all my patients for the first appointment and we go through every aspect of their lives and what we can improve and whether HIP is actually going to get them feeling mm. better. But those symptoms that you just listed, all of those have improved with HIP without a doubt. Thank um, you, Dr. Fiona. I just wanted to ask squeeze in one last question, which was about what foods should we avoid at this stage? This came through from Zena. Sugar. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I, oh, no. Sugar can affect sleep, sugar affects, oh, that, sorry, just back to that previous question, HRT doesn't make you gain weight. You'll often see a kilo in the first month, but what HRT, HRT does is correct the abnormal metabolism that happens in menopause and perimenopause. So actually it makes it easier to lose weight once you've got the hormones balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, back to food, high protein, low carb low sugar okay so it sounds sensible and low, al- low alcohol <clears throat> can we can we come back to the testosterone question here saying is there an alternative for testosterone patches at 700 dirhams for 30 patches which only lasts two weeks it's just not affordable right so testosterone comes 
it's called Test a Gel, and it comes in a box of 30 sachets, and each sachet lasts 10 days. So a box costs 700 dirhams that lasts uh, 300 days, almost for 10 months. So, so, dose, so this dosing might not so, be right. Okay, I'll no, wait. that's incorrect. It's it's a, a tenth of a, a tenth of a sachet every day. And this is this is patches rather than gel. If someone's on the no, patches, we don't have we don't have testosterone patches that okay. I'm aware of. We use testosterone gel, or there is a testosterone cream, which isn't my preference. I prescribe the gel. I have not heard of testosterone patches. Okay, I will reply to this saying yeah. exactly that. Um, and I guess just last question to anyone who is struggling with some of the symptoms we've mentioned. I think it's really important to, to validate exactly what we do. Just, just how painful and distressing and upsetting. We've had messages about vaginal atrophy. We've had messages about brain fog and you know irritability, mood swings, insomnia. Um, can we just have a bit of a mission to be, I guess, building more women's health um, experts? So you get you get a bit of a day off. And um, what's happening at Genesis in terms of supporting women in this space? So we have a new doctor, Dr. Sarah Sharif, who is extremely experienced with perimenopause and menopause, and I'm really excited to have her here. She's um, been in Dubai a long time and is quite well known. And I'm really hoping that she's going to help my waiting list. <laughs> so we've got two of us working. We've also got an endocrinologist here now. So um, we're doing really well with menopause and I'm just hoping it's going to be easier to get in. And one last question saying, how, can you rem how long can you remain on HRT? It is designed for long-term use, but do you have a limit mm. in mind when you prescribe it, Dr. Fiona? No, as long Good as you want to, to stay on it. Dr. Fiona Rennie, thank you so much for making time for us. As I said, you are one of Dubai's most in-demand doctors. I'm going to let you get back to your busy clinic. Thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Helen. Dr. Fiona Rennie from Genesis Clinic there. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're talking mental health uh, this afternoon and just, just absolutely delighted to, uh, to be in conversation with an intuitive empath, a healer and a transformation coach, Freya Mortensen. And have you ever been told, I know I have, that you're too sensitive, you need to grow a thicker skin? Or maybe you are someone who can really feel the emotions of others and leaves you feeling drained or anxious. Maybe it's because you're an empath. What is that exactly? Finding out now with Freya Mortensen. Freya, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Um, hello, Helen. I'm well. Thank you. I find this an absolutely fascinating topic. I really, really do. Um, but I would love to start really by getting your definition of an empath. How do you explain it to people that perhaps aren't as familiar as you are with that term? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so much that goes along with being an empath. And what you just described there is, is kind of just the tip of it. And, you know, for empathic people we seem to feel things on a much deeper level. You know, when you're saying, oh, don't be so sensitive. Well, we can't help it because our, our nervous systems are regulated in a certain way that we do feel things much deeper. And sometimes we feel things so deeply as if it's our own. So mm -hmm. you, maybe you might be feeling a certain emotional state and I take that on as my own. Um, 
And c- can you explain when this might start? Is it something we can see in even young children? Absolutely. Yeah, this really does begin from a very young age. Um, a lot of empathic people are seen as shy or introverted um, as children. And, and it's really just we're, we're being very curious observers. Mm-hmm. Right? We're taking in so much from our environment that we're holding back. And it is something that, that starts from an early age, yes, it does. Can I ask then how might it impact or, and that can be positive or negative, impact someone's, someone's life in ways that people who aren't as empathetic understand? What, what have you experienced in your time? Uh, well, we're, we're often going to be raised with, with people, maybe some caregivers, that aren't very empathetic or understanding of what it is that we're experiencing. And perhaps our caregivers may, may be experiencing these things too, but they don't understand it in themselves either. And mm-hmm. so it's been shunned and shamed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes we will, we will be drawn to, to people who lack empathy because we are so empathetic uh, that we give everyone the benefit of the doubt and we always see the good in everyone, but sometimes that's to our detriment. So you, you could be hurt by this, this trust and, and outpouring, I guess. And we're going to be talking after half past about people who are particularly empathetic or sensitive can protect themselves, protect their energy in a way. And we're also taking questions as well. So if you do want to get in touch with Freya, this is your chance on 4001. You can use your ARN Play app as well. Um, message here, and you can be anonymous if you prefer. Um, no name saying, I seem to attract broken people, especially in relationships. Are there any tools I can use next time I meet someone so I don't feel drained or used again? Mm-hmm. Well, and that just comes down to, um, you know, the issues of having boundaries. And for, for those of us that are attracting broken people, you know, a lot of empathic people, we are helpers. We are fixers. And we love to help and fix. But then this gets into a whole area called something called codependency. And so when you are codependent, you are attracting a lot of people who need fixing. And it's something that you do because it instills a sense of self-worth. If I can mm-hmm. do for others, that means I am worthy. And we, we get really um, trapped in that because then we get resentful because we're the ones doing things for others and no one's doing things for ourselves. So that, that's where that, that setting of boundaries needs to come into play. That's really interesting because I guess there's an, an aspect of expectation or gap in expectation about what you might be willing to do for someone and what they might do, you know, for you in response. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking about empathy this afternoon. Are you an empath? Freya Mortensen is. She's an intuitive empath, a a healer and a transformation and coach. And we're taking your questions and really getting a deeper understanding of those who are among us who are more deeply empathetic. Freya, we've had a lot of people asking for clarity on this. I'm, I'm hoping you can help shed some light. A message here saying, does being a good listener automatically make you empathetic great question oh no it, it it like that's a that's a great question it is but sometimes for for us empaths we have difficulty listening because we're going into problem solving mode all the time and we're just trying to think about what can i do for this person and help them but on the flip side on that healthy empathic side yes holding space for someone in a non-judgmental, 
compassionate way is very much a key trait of a healed and balanced empath indeed. Freya, it, you, you mentioned earlier about how it can you know, it can be very draining, you know, having, you know, feeling things so deeply. So I wondered in what ways could people that are really identifying with you and what you're saying today can protect their energy without avoiding people, you know, living a full life. Can you give some ideas and tips on building boundaries, really, without having to compromise who you are? Yes. The, the first thing that we have to really understand is that we need more alone time than other people do. And, and if you think that you can just carry on like other people who are not so highly sensitive, um, then you're going to end up being burnt out. And it's super important to take time for yourself. And you need to have shorter to-do lists. Don't plan yourself so much to do in one day because you're going to get overstimulated by all of the energy that's around you. Even if it's great, good, positive energy. At the end of it all, you're going to feel quite depleted still. Um, so taking that time for yourself and recognizing the importance of extra alone time and, and this whole concept of without judgment is very important for us to, to keep in mind. Can I ask then, do many empaths, and I'm not asking about you specifically, but if you'd like to share your, your own experiences, and please do, um, perhaps feeling like they don't fit in, you know, could this perhaps cause more isolation, feeling, you know, as a, as a bit of an outsider and even leading to mental health problems such as depression about feeling things so very deeply? Absolutely. You know, yesterday was World Mental Health Day and, and many, many people are not open to talking about their depression or their anxiety or perhaps some ADHD that, that is taking place and that makes them feel like they don't fit in. But when they hear this word empath, you know, they're like, oh, this, this is something that really describes me. This isn't something that's, that's talked about in the medical profession. And so perhaps I can, I can identify with, with this term, with this label that really um, sums me up and I feel like I belong. I feel like I'm understood. And I think it's a really a, a first step to them exploring other areas of, of uh, something called neurodivergency and understanding mm -hmm. that their brains are working differently because we're sensing and we're tuning in to our environments on a deeper and different level. And presumably it is something of a, of a spectrum, of a scale um, from extremely intuitively empathetic to, well, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe the, the other end of it is, you know, kind of <laughs> being a sociopath and having zero empathy at all. Um, do we know about why... Yeah, well, why some people are perhaps more inclined to being more empathetic. What, what are some of the causes, I don't want to say risk factors, but, you know, certainly some of the contributing factors? Yeah, there, there's a, a, a part of our brain called a mirror neuron. And so mirror neurons are responsible for, you know, in those early years of us learning and picking up and mimicking behaviors and understanding behaviors so that we can learn and, and respond in those ways by learned behavior but our mirror neurons for highly sensitive people are overly responsive so we're overly tuning into people in that empathic compassionate way whereas people who are on that other side of the spectrum their mirror neurons these brain cells are under responsive and that under responsivity um, has those people on the extreme other end of, of empathy where they're lacking a lot of empathy um, that they're having difficulty tuning into other people and their emotions.
So hopefully that, that kind of clarified things a little bit. It, it does. We've had actually had a number of questions asking about children in particular and, and raising empathetic children. Is there anything that you could offer parents who feel like they have got a little empath under their roof to, to best support them and some of the big feelings they might be experiencing? Oh, absolutely. If you're an empath, it's likely that your children's going to be highly sensitive as well. I know mine is. Mm. And I remember when we were younger, we couldn't do like, you know, go from this store to that store to this store. We, we couldn't have a whole day of outings. It would be she could go one place and then back home. And really nurturing that understanding that they can't take on so much. They love to be at home. They love to be in quiet spaces. They also need to be tending to their their, um, you know, the food that they're eating and making sure that they're getting enough rest and allowing them to hold back and not calling them shy, not forcing them to engage with people because I want people to remember this term of being a curious observer instead of, oh, my child is just shy. No, because now mm. we're shaming the child that they're shy mm. and something is wrong with them. All right, so we want to be very careful with, with how we're, we're tending to their needs and it's, and it's very much so uh, respecting the fact that sometimes they want to hold back, sometimes they don't want to do so much because we're getting overstimulated and, and that they need alone time and quiet time. I wanted to ask you um, a message from a listener actually. This is from Jan saying, um, I'm very empathetic and recently became very anxious after listening to friends who were going through a lot of issues. Is there anything I can do to protect my energy before I see certain people? Any practical tips? Mm, absolutely. You know, sometimes we need to let people know in our lives that, that we are highly sensitive and empathic and that sometimes we don't have the energy to, to hear where they're at right now. Um, sometimes we have to let people know, you know what, I would love to be able to, to you know, speak with you today, but my energy is really low and I don't have it to give to you today. And I hope you understand that. Um, and, and sometimes just limiting the, the number of time that, that we spend with people, you know, saying, oh, I'd love to hear. I got about 10 minutes today to listen to what, what you have, to, what's going on. And so that person understands that you've got a limit to, to listen to. Instead of spending hours with them on the phone, they can do so in a shorter amount of time. That preserves your energy. So coming back to boundaries, and no name on this message, Freya saying, if you are an empath, you need to learn how to build boundaries. In this modern world, empaths are the favorites for narcissists. I've experienced that in my own life, and my kindness and compassion have been taken advantage of. Um, I wanted to ask you about being intuitive. Um, what kind of link is there, and, and what have you experienced in your life? As I said, you are an intuitive empath. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, it means that you can tune into, you know, the, the feelings of others where you know how they're feeling. So someone comes to you and you, you know, you automatically have a sense of things. It's that sixth sense with the energy of the planet, with plants, with animals. You know, you can be thinking about someone and then they send you a text message. I'm sure we've all had those, those moments, right? Or, or you're thinking something about someone and thinking, oh my gosh, are they okay? And then you realize that they just, something happened to them. Maybe they just fell down the stairs and they had to go to the hospital. And you sense that. Um, and sometimes we don't trust our intuitive senses. Uh, we think it's ridiculous. How can that be? But we are constantly tuning into other people's energy. And when we are balanced and when we are, are managing our energy, 
then we can tune into that on a much more deeper level and trust it. Trusting your intuition is something that a lot of empaths need to work on. And Freya, lastly, a message here um, from Gina saying, where can we read more about this? Are there any books to support? Um, so that's a great question to end on, if you don't mind, just, I guess, about further resources and reading that you'd like to point people in the direction of. And that can be your own, if you feel that's the best. <laughs> yeah, you know, there is a, a few great books. The one that I always recommend is by Dr. Judith Orloff. And she's got a wonderful book called The Empath Survival Guide. And another one by Elaine Aaron, and she's got a book called The Highly Sensitive Person. Um, she's also got a book for highly sensitive parents and the highly sensitive child. Um, and, you know, I always encourage people to, to join my Facebook group. It's called The Evolving Empath, where I share lots of information for empaths at various levels of their empath journey. Well, honestly, thank you so much. Really fascinating. And I think it's really resonated with a lot of people listening today, especially looking at raising the next generation, protecting some energy out there. And um, thank you for sharing yours today. Really do appreciate it. W where can people follow you and indeed connect with you? Yes, Helen. You know, people can find me at Empathic Coach on Instagram and on TikTok. And like I mentioned, my, my Facebook group, that's The Evolving Empath. Thank you so, so much. Freya Mortensen there sharing her insights. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.